up in the air, dips in the Lido even though it's Baltic and walks with the three-nager. There are a million things I'm thankful for today, but what is my guest thankful for? The big thank you would be society in general because the way that people have changed their attitudes towards non-drinkers is really remarkable. I'm Angela Scanlon and welcome to Thanks A Million, where we explore our guests' personal gratitude lists to find out the things that have shaped their lives. This week, you have the pleasure of hearing from the Sunday Times bestselling author, Catherine Gray. She's written five books, including the Unexpected Joy of series on sobriety, being single and the ordinary. Who better than to talk all about gratitude? I mean, she's literally writes books about finding joy in stuff and some pretty bleak stuff, let's be honest. Catherine previously worked for magazines such as Cosmopolitan, Glamour and Fabulous for nearly a decade before going freelance herself and being published pretty much everywhere from The Guardian to women's health. After finding herself drinking, in her own words, a life-endangering amount of alcohol, she decided to become sober and wrote about her experience in her books, the hope to reinvent how Britain thinks about being alcohol-free. She was also never single. From the ages of 18 to 33 and the few weeks she was, were spent interviewing future potentials. But as with sobriety, Catherine is now very thankful for time on her own. But what three things are you thankful for? Lauren Oxy, adding an extra half mile to my run this morning because I was enjoying your Joel Domit podcast so much. Good job. Wasn't he great at the NTAs as well? Fleetwood Mac, love it, was just listening to And the World We Great old tune. Uh, watching my seven-year-old get lost in drawing. He loves art. Oh, God. I also love the way they're not self-conscious, even if they're shit. It's the best. Not saying he is. I'm sure he's absolutely gifted. Biddy G, having the strength to go for a walk with my cranky old hip, picking damsons, slows and elderberries growing madly wild on the sidewalk. Sidewalk. Nice. Prepping all three already for making them into a naughty gin. Lovely. That sounds nice. Marion. This is actually my mum. To be in Belmullet, that mayo as a whole has been saved from a massive outbreak of COVID. It's niche content here, but basically mayo lost the All-Ireland football final in GAA. And I mean, there's a curse. It's I'm not even going to go into it. Just Google it. A lovely walk on a quiet, sunny beach. Enjoy that, ma'am. So with Catherine Gray and in our chat, just in case any of these will be triggering for you, there is addiction and sobriety, as mentioned before. Owning a home and being single, rejection, fate and boundaries and hobnobs. I watched Sunday Brunch the other day. Two of the guests out of three had chosen chocolate hobnobs for their great biscuit challenge thing. Anyway... I'm going to go grab one while you guys listen to this. Welcome along, Catherine Gray. Hello and good morning, Catherine Gray. Hello, thanks for having me. I can't quite believe I'm I'm on your show. I've just had a look at who else you've had. It's unbelievable. Oh no, I'm delighted to have you. And it's funny because obviously, you know, your book, The Joy of Being Sober has been out for, for quite a while. Obviously, you were ahead of the curve and maybe, you know, on the extreme end of things. But my experience is that a lot of people in my circle are now dabbling with sobriety as a lifestyle choice. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a huge surge in interest. And 
very different to what it was like when I quit drinking in 2013, which is such a positive thing. Then the, the perception was very much you only quit drinking if you absolutely have to, if you're kind of sipping vodka out of a paper bag. Yes. So, and it's a very terribly sad, awful lifestyle choice to be sober. And now that's completely turned on its head and everyone seems to be crowing about being sober almost. It's, it's become very positive, which is lovely. Yeah, totally. And it doesn't feel like, because I initially thought, oh, it's young people and they're, you know, health conscious and they're acutely aware that putting, you know, like, you know, I booze, by the way, I should say from the <laughs> beginning. Um, but there's so much kind of judgment around other recreational lifestyle choices. And yet booze is like, it's more of a judgment if you don't drink than if you do a lot of the time. Yeah, it's a funny old world, isn't it? And yeah. teenagers are, are expected to grow up to be drinkers. And I've yeah. even witnessed teenagers who don't want to have a drink at a family mm-hmm. party be pressurised into it, even though they were underage. Yeah. Um, what, by their parents? Thing. Yeah. Oh I mean, my. I'm, I'm no, naming no names. No names. <laughs> but uh, no names. this was in Ireland, and, you know, I, really? I'm originally Irish, and it's a, it is a very drink-centric culture, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But if people say no, that should be respected, just as it, it shouldn't be... Um, frowned upon if people want to have a drink you know mm. it's it's it should be that tolerance and respect on either side no matter what you choose to put in your body I mean I do think there was always that kind of sense of what's my excuse going to be if I'm yeah. not drinking you know <laughs> on I'm on antibiotics <laughs> job interview <laughs> yeah totally and I know even when I got pregnant with my daughter I literally had to avoid my friends for three months because I thought if I sit down and I'm not drinking and they're like oh you're not <laughs> drinking um there was no legitimate excuse that was was credible enough to them other than you're up the duff and it was kind of like an impossibility to to mask which sounds bizarre yeah it, I mean I, I've seen that happen so many times and there's even there's a section in a famous pregnancy book which I, I won't name but mm-hmm. it um it shows you how to faux drink in the per- first three months so that oh people God. don't heckle you to have a drink but surely the thing that's wrong with that picture is that people would really pressure at you and question it yeah um although I guess if your friends are accustomed to you having a drink every time you go out which was definitely the case with mine if I yeah. suddenly stopped drinking for three months they would have been like you're clearly you know you've you've got a bun in the oven it's something that society is moving forward on but hopefully it will continue to get better yeah yeah for sure um okay Catherine today what is it that you're thankful for well um it's pretty early on but I was just in the park with my puppy and he got startled by another dog barking and he literally ran up to me and climbed me like a tree and then just perched on my shoulders and it just felt so lovely that I'm his safe space um when he's scared even though that was obviously not a great experience for him it felt nice that he feels you know he can trust me to protect him so that's that's for today. Oh, that's lovely. And okay, so the puppy's name is Arlo. Yes. Yeah. How old? Three months. Three months, a baba. Yeah. And so have you always wanted a dog? Are you a dog person? Did you grow up with dogs? Or have you, is this a bit of a like lockdown situation? Oh, I, mean, I, know I, we're have, kind of I have wanted a dog for, I ever since I was 10, you know, mm. I, I absolutely adore dogs and my family always had dogs. So this is the realisation of a lifelong dream. I basically bought a flat so I could get a dog. 
that's that's congratulations on both (laughs) um that's amazing okay so you now have your safe space as well I assume yeah and it feels lovely I mean I I think um it's a real shocker that only I think it's 40 percent of 20 and 30 somethings will own a property in their lifetime because it just seems so astronomically unachievable to save that much money I mean that that stats a few years old but that was a stat from shelter a few years ago Um, just because it's so hard to get on the ladder so I finally got there aged 40 um, but I honestly thought I never would and it it does feel good oh no that's amazing we don't own our house we rent but I do have such a yearning to like Mm. own there's like this little niggle always and I I kind of have this sense that when you own your own home you kind of like your roots are down even though that's obviously changeable and everything can turn upside down or inside out but I think there's something about having a route, I suppose, and knowing yeah. that nobody can call you up and go, oh, actually, we've changed our mind and off you go. <laughs> yeah, other than the, the bank. <laughs> yes, yeah, well, that's... <laughs> those do that. <laughs> Those guys, yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> um, have you lived alone for a while? Because it's always been actually... A dr- I remember reading a book before and it said um, that you should o- live alone at least once in your life. And obviously, and we'll talk about this, but the obsession with partnering up, and I know that's the subject of your second book, but is this relatively new? Did you share before or is this your first time living alone? Yeah, I did share. So I I always, I couldn't afford to have my own place in in London. You basically have to be a a banker to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was was always the sharing with housemates situation, which obviously brings its own challenges and also joys. Yeah. Um, But I've now lived alone for three years, maybe a bit more. And it is lovely because I don't have to deal with anyone else's mess. Yeah. Um, or noise and it just feels like you know when I shut the door uh, I've got my little bolt hole so Your that's sanctuary. a really pleasant feeling yeah mm. it's good gorgeous oh my god I feel calm just thinking about it <laughs> well done seriously and also Arlo is impeccably behaved yeah, I'm not sure what he's doing right now. But we'll <laughs> Shitting just let himself. Him get probably. on with it. Yeah, I can't see him, so he's, he's probably doing something wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's that whole thing. Oh, when he's quiet, you're like delighted slash yeah. terrified. Exactly. Um, okay, what is the thank fuck for this? Actually, I'm going to go meta on this, and I'm going to say gratitude. Oh, because because. Um, I only recently learned the word meta because I'm 41. I'm into but, it. Um, yeah, but I when I was a newborn sober. So this was back in 2013. I, stumbled I love upon... that term. Sorry, newborn sober. <laughs> yeah, new, newly hatched. Um, I stumbled upon this this notion of a gratitude group um, mm-hmm. based on this feeling that a grateful heart never drinks. And even though everything in me, I was so snarky and such a cynic back then. I was like, oh my God, that's disgusting. But also, oh my God, I'm, I'm gravitating towards it. I actually found gratitude um, to be almost a displeasing concept because I was so used to criticising everything and seeing negative and things and being sarcastic. Mm-hmm. And so it was almost like, even though I, my body rebelled against it, I knew I needed it. And I joined that group and I've since written tens of thousands of gratitudes. It's something I do um, every night if I can. And it has completely re-angled my brain. It's turned it from this negatively biased snark machine into this um, almost 
Pollyanna positive good things you know are, are what I look for now so yeah. it's really been a life changer for me so thank fuck for gratitude you know what I completely relate to that not as a newborn sober but as a kind of I mean snark machine is a word that I'm definitely going to add to my dictionary and I think it was kind of judgment both of myself of other people I was like quite an energetic outwardly positive person but there was an awful lot of internal dialogue and bashing going on and nothing was ever enough and so I thought actually maybe if I like do a podcast around it I'll have to practice what I preach I'll have to (laughs) stick to this thing and I do think in a similar way to you it's had like such an oddly profound effect on on my life yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like the podcast was your version of me joining the group. Exactly I had that. to do it. Yeah. Um, and w- so tell me about the group. What is the group? Is this like a WhatsApp group? Oh, it was just a thing like on Facebook. So okay. it was me and nine others who were all also newly sober. Okay. And um, the idea was we went on it every day and did five gratitudes. And I found that, I, you know, at, with practice, I was able to find, I can now easily find, you know, 25 things in a day yeah. once, I, once I go to bed because you just find them. You just get used to finding them. Yeah. I think it's important, though, to go really micro on your gratitude. So mm-hmm. what I find is that a lot of people, when they're tr- starting gratitude, including myself, they go too big and too broad and they're like, thank you for my flat, my dog, my yeah car whatever and because those things don't change they just end up repeating the same gratitudes whereas the way that I now do it because I know it's more powerful is by finding that specific moment like for instance with my puppy today or that specific you know moment in your car when the song comes on the radio that you love and you feel like you're you know in a convertible in California Mm. that moment when just everything fell into place and felt good yeah so I would say yeah go micro rather than macro if you're starting a gratitude practice that is a really really good way to tackle it and also so things that are almost not dependent on other people if you go oh thank you for that lovely you know lunch that I just made myself I do on Instagram this thanks a million trio and sometimes it can feel like oh my I, I imagine if you're in like snark machine mode and you read, oh, I had a lovely cuddle with my puppy or I had a really beautiful <laughs> steaming cup of coffee. There may be an eye roll and a resistance. Oh my God, yeah. And I think that what you touched on before, which was really profound, is that when you are in a cycle of judging yourself and being critical of yourself, that eye roll is so much more likely yeah. when somebody else is being what you see as a bit twee and Pollyanna mm-hmm. because you do that to yourself. Yeah. So it's it's definitely like an inside-out process. But the only way you can change your insides is by doing something different because nothing changes if nothing changes, yeah. right? Yeah. So if you end the day like I used to, thinking about all the things that could go wrong mm-hmm. or have gone wrong or, you know, what those you didn't tiny, do... Yeah, exactly, which is, it's an actual psychological bias, it's called the Zaganic effect, which is basically that we, the things that we haven't done are more memorable than the things that we have done, and it was based on this Russian psychologist who sat there in a restaurant and realised that the waiters who had fulfilled the orders completely forgot about the orders they'd fulfilled and were all focused on the orders they hadn't fulfilled and we do that at the end of the day we lie there with our minds racing about the things that we haven't managed to do and we forget all the things that we have done Mm -hmm. so it's um yeah it's just about coaxing your mind nudging it back to that 
positive, you know, what you've ticked off and what has gone right today. Yeah. Even in a really terrible day, you can still find those moments. A hundred percent. And I think it's exactly that. It's a it's a practice. And I, this is probably not what, a, what you want to hear when you're stuck in the shithole, but it is that kind of discipline of going, okay, what can I find in this that might bring me a little bit closer to feeling better? The key yeah. is catching yourself. So even if that's all you've done, that's a moment to to recognise that you are changing, I think, because, you know, you can spend years not even recognising that this internal chatter and judgment is constantly present. So it's, it is that moment where you go, oh, I can hear that little bitch. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, no? si- and, si- and silence her with a... With a- Pollyanna repost but um, and it changes everything it changes how you approach every big life event Mm -hmm. I mean like you just said even in a really negative thing you can find a positive yeah we lost my granddad last week and um it was yeah it was terribly terribly sad um and he was one of my favorite humans but then when you start thinking about all the positive things I got out of knowing him Mm. and you know I, I used to give him for his birthday these all these quotes that he'd said because he was just so quotable he was hilarious Amazing. Uh, very right even to the end at 94 he, he was outwitting the rest of us and and also because um we all went back to ireland for the funeral oh, i got to see my family for the first time a year in a year and a half if you take that really awful cataclysmic life event mm-hmm. and there's nothing to lose from seeing the positives that come out of it yeah. There really isn't. All you can do is make yourself feel better. And that's not denying the loss and the negativity. That's just lifting yourself up from a really dark place. And that what a beautiful thing. And I think that is so key because it's not about denying you know the negative or the darkness it's about recognizing it and then also recognizing that you have the choice to decide whether to to stay in that or to look you know in another direction and that sounds kind of like I'm denying it but actually that you you do have a choice to see something you know positive in that yeah I love that Catherine, what is the thank you next? So this is sort of something that in hindsight I'm grateful for, but I wasn't (laughs) grateful for at the time, which is pretty much every breakup I've ever been through. Uh, which at the time, even when it felt like, oh my gosh, my heart's been ripped from my body and stamped on. When I look back at it, it was always the right decision, whether it was by me or by them or by circumstance. Because even though I don't believe in destiny, I'm a big believer in that that saying, rejection is the universe's protection. I believe that we kind of get guided in the right direction just by little nudges and sometimes a full-on punch in the face Mm -hmm. (laughs) when you get broken up with. Uh, And yeah, so that's my thank you next. So you say you don't believe in fate, but like rejection is the universe's protection sounds very fatalistic. I know. I don't, I don't know how to explain that to you. Because I do believe that we sort of make our own fate. Yeah. But then I, I also believe that if you're doing the next right thing, if you're just trying your best as a person, trying to be a good person, then 
something steers you in the right direction. Mm. It's almost like a river making its way down a hill. Yeah. So I know those two things are somewhat contradictory. No, I believe <laughs> I hear I hear you actually because my mum was big on you know what's for you won't pass you and what's meant to be will be and I really really kicked back on that in my teenage years. I was like no absolutely not. That to my mind suggested that somebody had determined your fate and you're in it now. So you're in the game and you've got to get to the end and like you've literally got no choice whatever happens is happening anyway and I do think that can feel quite disempowering to believe that you're literally just like floating along and somebody's pulling the lever whereas actually I do think there are multiple realities that we can inhabit and the choices that we make and the the nudges that we listen to and the rejection that's forced upon us when we haven't listened maybe is what guides us you know so the the road can be very different maybe the destination who knows whether that's predetermined I, I love everything you just said. And I think it's it, what, what you just said about the voice, you know, the intuition mm. and tuning into that. And again, that sounds really kooky and like, you know, dream catchery. But I, I, which is, I'm allergic to, I just don't like all of that, like crystal caressing stuff. I mean, I will caress a crystal all day long. <laughs> so it's good. There's a nice balance here. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm all on board with your crystal caressing. It's just, it's just not for but me. But the intuition. <laughs> yeah, I do think, for me, it's based on psychology. Mm. Deep down, we know when things aren't right for us. And, and that's based on our super intelligence which is pretty much going on in the background that we don't really know about that's reading all these micro um expressions and you know tiny lilts and tone of voice and things like that that mean that when we have a feeling about somebody that that we shouldn't be around them Mm. we shouldn't be around them even if they want to be around you I, i am a terror for kind of people pleasing and Say, for instance, getting into friendships where I'm, I don't actually necessarily want to be friends with the person. But if they want to be friends with me and come at me really hard, I will yeah. go with it and not listen to my intuition and then kick myself three months down the line. Um, but, I mean, that sounds like... No, 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 own, I hear that. And, <laughs> no, and no, I know, <laughs> so Sunshine, Warm, Sober, your most recent book, there's a lot of chat around boundaries in it. And I think that's kind of, you know, what you're getting at is that... And, and maybe that's a different thing, obviously, to intuition, but it's probably overriding your intuition over a long period of time that leads you to kind of constantly letting people in, finding yourself in situations that aren't right yeah it's just being scared Mm. to say no when somebody wants to hang out with you and you don't want to hang out with them it's that being scared to say no and just going with it because you don't want them to dislike you I think setting boundaries that you really have to go into that terrifying place where you lose the urge to be liked and put your own self-care above it and I think as women particularly and that's sort of women with an ex we are conditioned to be Mm. pleasant and easygoing and go along with things and not express our preferences but it's so important that we do so uh, yeah I'm I'm working on that and it's interesting that you say not express our preferences my experience and I've kind of been doing a lot of you know self-exploration if that's the term I don't know but what I realized was that when I would be asked, you know, what what are you into? I couldn't really answer that. Or it depended 
who I was speaking to, what answer I would present, which is total people pleasing. And to- <laughs> and it was unconscious. It yeah. wasn't like I was trying to actively um, deceive anyone or present an image that was untrue. But I kind of would very quickly read a situation, read a person. Were they into art? Were they into books? Were they whatever it might have been? And what I recognised when I kind of stopped and really looked into that was I didn't know what my preferences were. I had kind of spent very long time doing what other people wanted me to do, behaving the way I thought other people wanted me to behave. And so I had kind of gotten so far away from actually knowing what my preferences are, which you say, you know, is is the start of everything, but can be a really simple thing that people are not in touch with at all. Yeah, I really relate to that. And it's, it, you know, it depended on who I was with. It was it would be whether I cited a highbrow book or talked about mm. Made in Chelsea. Yes. You know, I, re- I read the room and I chameleoned yeah. my way into it because I wanted them to like me. That was yeah. basically my top most priority of any social situation. Mm-hmm. And so I would bend and contort and fit into what I thought they wanted. And yeah. now I just don't do that. I'm just who I am I still find myself doing it slightly I think we all do it slightly mm. but it's it's important to recognize when you've gone into chameleon mode and you're not being you know authentic yeah and authentic and you know like the gratitude group and that kind of muscle that you flexed is there anything in terms of a recognizing or getting back in touch with your preferences with what you like with what you don't like but also is there you know any kind of advice on saying no which as you say I I do think is a very female issue a lot of the time yeah oh well that's two great questions so with the finding out what you actually like I think it's really important it was for me at least to spend a long time single because I was very much the person who just melded into my partner and just liked whatever they liked you know if they were into long walks and watching Lord of the Rings and smoking weed I used to do that too if they were into art galleries and fancy restaurants I would be that girl and so that really helped me figure out what I actually liked which was life-changing for me and the second part of the question so the saying no to people I think something that women in particular tend to do is when we say no we apologize we're like sorry but I can't do that sorry but I you know and we haven't done anything wrong (laughs) it's okay to say no I don't I don't want to do it that way or I can't make that event so I've now forced myself to stop apologizing 35 times a day um, even if it's just apologising for walking yes. past someone. I mean, that, that's that's what we're like. We're just sorry, 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 sorry. And when I lived in Barcelona, I learned the word for sorry. And I was saying it to people in the street when I bumped into them or what have you. And I got really strange looks because that version of sorry is very much I am deeply okay. apologetic. And, so, <laughs> and in our culture, sorry is almost like yeah. hello or goodbye. It's probably one of our most used words and in other cultures, they're just baffled by it if you apologise yeah. all the time. So I would say practice saying no to start and you probably will couch it and cloak it and yeah. marshmallow it with apologies because you're not used to saying no. But then the most radical version of saying no is not apologising for it. Well, see, that now to me feels 
like almost affronting you know I would feel and and I think that's how I receive it which is obviously the problem so it's when I then think of doing it I'm imagining the other person's response or feeling so a no to me from somebody even if it's around schedule but if it if it didn't have a caveat as to why I think I would feel deeply wounded and quite rejected even on a you know fairly superficial level if it was a plan oh do you want to go to the cinema tonight no oh my god what is your problem like I literally just asked you to go to the cinema what like I feel like I would be I don't know offended by just a solid no (laughs) oh I don't mean it like that I just mean instead of saying no you know sorry but I'm so sorry but I can't okay instead of big explanation just say you know no I'm afraid I can't do that and absolutely say why you can't do that but rather than saying sorry all the time yeah. rather than uh, I try to say I'm afraid I can't or I'm afraid um, I can't I don't have the you know time for that I'm afraid yeah. rather than going straight to sorry which is what I want to do what everything in me wants to do uh, because that makes me feel guilty because I was mm. raised to just say yes to everything and I I even have um, a folder on my desktop which is marked favors for people because I just you know if, if somebody asked me to write their website back when I was a jobbing writer, I'd do yeah. it for nothing. Um, wow. If somebody asked me to look after their dog all weekend, even though I had plans, I'd cancel my plans and do it. I, I was just raised to say yes. And, yeah. and almost, Without even um, thinking about what you need to sacrifice to, to uphold that yes. Yeah, and mm. um, I, I don't know whether that's something that other women would identify with. I, I suspect it I, probably yeah. is. And yeah. men as well. And if you say yes, you're a good girl. If you say no, you're a bad girl. You're selfish. But you see, here's the thing. And I think this is where the whole boundaries chat comes into place. Because sometimes I think people hear boundaries and they go, selfish cow, doing what yeah. suits her, only does it when it suits her. You can't depend, da, 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 da. But actually, the, I think it's about the quality of your yeses and the quality of your noes. Because the truth is, if you're in like, auto response and you say yes to everything there's resentment you go yeah yeah yeah, I can do that and then you're thinking what a dick she literally left her dog with me the whole weekend and you kind of forget (laughs) that you've agreed to do it because you it, it was an instinctive yes but actually it comes with kind of conditions and yeah and resentment so actually it's not that nice an exchange anyway so yes you're doing them a favor but it's a kind of slight begrudging favor in the end yeah and the reason it's so important for me and so important in the new book because the new book is basically about if the unexpected joy of being sober was about um being an adolescent sober you know learning how to do things for the first time like go to a wedding or date Mm. or dance or um network you know this is about how to be a sober grown-up and one of the reasons setting boundaries is so crucial is because if you don't, you will get cannibalized by resentment because mm-hmm. you'll end up spending almost all your time doing things you don't want to do. And that kind of resentment leads to thinking, which leads to drinking. Mm-hmm. It's crucial. It's vital if you're sober to learn how to set boundaries. And I assume that drinking can be subbed in with whatever any person's crutch of choice is you know whether that's eating or whether that's gambling and those are kind yeah. of you know the more top line ones but I think most people will have a crutch scrolling is is a big one for us all now and so yeah, yeah when you're not honoring yourself or making space for yourself you're yeah. 
you know, inevitably going to turn in the wrong direction. That's so true. And it's it's almost like you drink. So I often used to end a day at work having just smiled and people pleased my way through it mm. and would then drink at my colleagues and my boss. Oh. Go home and like get pissed. In almost this recovery saying that you're drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Yeah. So I would open a bottle of wine, phone somebody, have a bitch and a moan. And I was drinking at that person, not... Yeah it wasn't constructive it wasn't positive in any way and I think a lot of people do that whatever their crux is they use that as an anesthetic when they have found themselves saying yes when they wanted to say no Mm, I love that well I don't but I (laughs) I don't love when I do it myself personally (laughs) I hate boundaries believe me I hate them hate setting them hate everything about them Is there a thanks that got away? Yeah, I mean, the thing that springs to mind for this, because I never actually thanked them for it, and it'd be a bit weird to do that now, is when I was 30, I was given a very, very big job. It was way too big for me, and um, I was made basically head of a team on this multi-million selling magazine and had to manage staff and things like that and I just didn't I mean I wanted the paycheck but I really wasn't interested in doing a good job at that point Mm. all I was interested in was scarfing at 5 30 and skedaddling home to drink a bottle of wine at least probably a bottle and a half and so I did a really half-baked job and they they didn't fire me but they sort of coaxed me (laughs) to quit and so I quit and then ended up freelance and then my addiction really ran downhill it really dug its claws in and this seems this is a bit of a topsy-turvy one but I honestly think that if I'd stayed in the 95 world where the obstacle between me and my drinking was turning up to work each day and not getting fired then I probably would have continued drinking until I was maybe you know 39 rather than quitting at 33 so that's my thanks that got away. But I mean, to me, hearing that, you said you got this big job, way too big for you at the time. That feels like, you know, a classic sabotage move that you've talked yourself into this glorious job. You know, they obviously felt you were ready for it. Then you're sitting there having gotten the gig, but not feeling deserving of it. So therefore, you've got to wreck it. I 100% think that sometimes that happens. People do self-sabotage because of imposter syndrome. Mm. But for for this particular job and this scenario, I think I could have done the job if I'd been firing on all cylinders. And they hired me for the potential me. What they didn't know was that I was sliding into addiction at the time and getting worse and worse. My job performance, I'd managed to really, you know somehow get away with it through my 20s and then in my 30s my job performance really started declining mm. which it does the more that you drink mm. so it was more a case of my dependence sabotaging my work life and also my anxiety was so shrill at the time because mm. of the drinking because what I didn't realize is even though alcohol works as an anxiety anesthetic yeah. in the moment Overall, if you're drinking a lot to manage anxiety, it makes your anxiety a hell of a lot worse. So I remember just sitting there in meetings, these big board meetings where I was expected to present to 25 people every morning and just 
feeling like I was going to vomit, feeling like, like I needed to run from the room and run forever and never stop running, like mm. Forrest Gump, um, <laughs> and just not knowing what was wrong with me. And the thing that was wrong with me was the thing that I thought was helping me, which yeah. was the nearly nightly wine habit to to put a cloak over that anxiety but then in the morning it just reared up worse than before and so you quit at 33 how long to use your word were you using that cloak of booze oh 21 years i mean i started drinking when i was 12 and that was at a family party on island mcgee and I won't say who gave me the alcohol, but I was given it when I was 12 and it was an alcopop. And, uh, you know, I just drank too much of it and got alcohol poisoning my very first time. And even though I was vomiting and so sick from it, I couldn't wait to do it again because it just felt, as it does, like it took away my inhibitions. And I was such a gawky, awkward 12-year-old that that to me was just like, hallelujah, I found... The way that I can talk to people and talk to boys and have a good time at a party and that answer is these drinks. <laughs> They're magic. Um, that's bonkers though because you know you describe yourself as a gawky awkward 12 year old. I think every 12 year old is gawky and awkward and so actually yeah. if you're then presented with this magic elixir that takes away all of that you know the awareness around that gawkiness that is like very seductive stuff. Yeah, oh, I mean, the thing is, I probably would have learned how to ungawk myself and learn how to manage that social anxiety mm. naturally if I hadn't been presented with alcohol as the solution, yeah. just as you say. Yeah. But we are, and then it just gets its hooks into us. And if you start drinking before the age of 15, you're four times more likely to be addicted later wow. in life, which is just unbelievable, isn't it? Um, so crazy. when we're kind of teaching teenagers how to drink by giving them half a glass of wine yeah. with dinner or what have you when they're 14 that is actually setting them up for a much higher chance of addiction later on wow. and I've done it myself I have given 15 uh, year olds drinks at a family party mm-hmm. on the sly and gotten into trouble for it as, yeah. as it happens but I've done it myself I've drank pushed two teenagers And it's an unhealthy habit that we probably need to stop doing. But I think also people think, oh, you know, half a glass of wine. It's responsible. It's in front of me. I'd rather this than cans in the park when I'm not looking. You know, I think that's the mentality. And it's kind of done from a place of care or wanting to to have an open kind of communication. But I did not realise that there was such a strong correlation between starting you know, drinking young and addiction later on, that's scary. Yeah, I definitely held that view myself because mm. I thought it's inevitable these 15-year-olds that I am feeding cider to yeah. by a lemonade are going to grow up to be drinkers. So by teaching them how to drink in front of me and controlling how much they get, then I am being a good, responsible adult. Mm-hmm. But actually, now, a third of millennials don't drink. So we don't live in this society now where it's inevitable that kids will grow up to be drinkers. So why would we make their chances of addiction higher yeah. by giving them alcohol early on? I think that's turned our notions on their heads of responsible drinking. Yeah. And also, drinking responsibly is a bit of a misnomer. Mm. I drank irresponsibly. The very nature of drinking is that it makes you irresponsible, lowers your inhibitions and makes you more likely to do things you otherwise wouldn't. Yeah. So 
drink responsibly is a phrase that's literally been devised by the alcohol industry to make us think that it's um, very easy to moderate and easy to drink in a responsible manner when it's actually fiendishly difficult. Yeah, I've heard you talk and I think it really resonates the idea that, you know, if you take other mood enhancers, let's call them, you kind of are aware of what the effects are on you. With alcohol, there's a romantic notion that alcohol helps the true Catherine, the true Angela emerge. And that's not something you agree with at all. No, I mean, it's in so many catchphrases, like in vino veritas, for instance. Mm -hmm. We really think it's like this this alchemy that releases our true selves like a genie from a bottle yeah. and then when, when we take cocaine we know uh, we know that it turns us into i can't think of a word that's not a swear word obnoxious <laughs> Ar- arrogant nitwits <laughs> yeah uh, and then when we if we take mdma we know that we're going to think we love everyone even though we don't and we're going to want to dance until 4am but it's uh, with alcohol we just see it as almost like juice it's yeah. just that we don't correlate things like so when you drink say for instance you 70 percent of infidelities happen when people are drunk and we don't see it as an enabler for infidelity we think oh well that person obviously wanted to cheat anyway Mm -hmm. and the alcohol just let them do it we we have this mental block around seeing that the alcohol is the conduit yes the person did it but if they hadn't been drunk, they most likely wouldn't have. I, I think that's a hard one for people to swallow, though. Couldn't we all just blame everything on <laughs> booze? Get away yeah. with murder, literally. Like stand up in court and use a drunk plea. Yeah. <laughs> insanity plea. No, I'm not saying that in any way. But you know that when somebody's on acid and they mm-hmm. think that they can fly, you know that the acid has Did um, that. created that. Whereas yeah. when you see somebody behaving like a total burk when they're drunk, yeah. you you kind of think it's the person. That's very alcohol. true. That is so very it's, true. Yeah, it's about recognising that complex interplay between the person and the substance, not blaming on the substance, if you see what I mean. Yeah, and being able to uh, distinguish between the person and the and the substance. Now, does, do, do you think that applies to addicts more so than recreational drinkers or is it the same no i i really don't and i mean i think there's a huge gray area as to what addicted drinking looks like Mm. and what normal in inverted commas looks like because actually the average brit um puts away 26 units a week which is well over the 14 unit so what because the units kind of blow my mind a bit so 26 units how many bottles of wine is that that's two and a half bottles of wine. I mean, I would say <laughs> Which, that's standard for a lot of Brits and Irish oh, people yeah. too. I mean, that that was, for some people I know, that's a that's night That's a night, out. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a heavy night. It's a yeah. big night, but it's a night. So yeah. it's, it's really easy to bust through those 14 units and go into high levels, in which case you wouldn't be classified as a moderate drinker. Mm. Moderate drinkers are actually really rare. They're, they're, I barely know any. I can count them on one hand. They're the people who go out and have one or two drinks on okay. a night out and pff, I, don't, I just don't know them, yeah. <laughs> apart from yeah. maybe four. So, so most people are, when they're in, they're in. Or when they're out, yeah. they're out more likely. 
Definitely. And I mean, there is a correlation. The the more you grow, you slide into dependence. And I hesitate to use the label addict because I don't really agree with it. But the Mm. more you slide into addicted drinking, the more you your behaviors will become skewed and immoral. Because something that happens that's neuroscientific, which is that the um, prefrontal cortex shrinks and so the adult of your brain is taking a back seat and you're making decisions based on very primal basic urges yeah so it you you literally are less logical Mm -hmm. and less reasonable and less moral the the harder you drink everyone experiences that at some point if they have a huge night out i'm trying to remember yeah okay (laughs) Um, okay is there a big thank you i would say the big thank you so i'm taking this as like a broad thank you would be society in general because just the way that people have changed their attitudes towards non-drinkers is really remarkable so i'm almost eight years sober when i quit everyone was like oh no what a a shame are you okay that's terrible it's almost like i was bereaved I was treated as a pity case and terribly sad individual. Mm-hmm. And now it's really not like that. It is sometimes, I mean, there's, there's parts of society that are a little bit behind and that need to catch up. But mostly if people don't drink now, they don't get heckled for it and called boring. Yeah. And uh, that sort of thing is dying out, which I'm really happy about. So thanks yeah. to everyone who doesn't heckle a non-drinker yay <laughs> <laughs> yeah and doesn't allow for like you're not drinking to seemingly ruin their drinking yeah which I guess is not encouraging but indirectly allowing them to go oh maybe I yeah do I drink too much <laughs> Yeah, I think it holds an uncomfortable mirror up. And the irony is, I just, I love drinkers. They're they're my people. You know, I gravitate towards them even now because they're the hedonists. They're the vulnerable. They're the, you know, they're they're Mm. people I love. And so it's, I'm the last person to judge a big drinker. And you will find that from many, many sober or sober curious people because they've done it. They have done all the flaming sambucas and yoga bombs and so they're not going to sit there in, in judgment of your drinking and if they are then you know let's just ignore them because yeah. they they've been the big drinker so mm-hmm. it, it would just be hypocritical for for me to judge a drinker but i, I do think it. there is that fear isn't there with drinkers surrounded by non-drinkers or infiltrated by a non-drinkers this assumption that you know ears are pricked eyes are peeled and you're taking in everything and you'll remember tomorrow what's been said and you know who's looked what way and whatever else and so there's a kind of vulnerability or suspiciousness around the (sighs) non-drinkers that kind of suggests they're here to catch you out (laughs) yeah bundle you into a van and take you to a recovery meeting yeah yeah I mean and I used to feel that way I felt very wary of uh, teetotalers and just didn't want to be around them particularly Mm. when I was half in the bag so I just avoided them. It was almost like they were carrying an invisible shield and I couldn't go within six feet of them. Yeah. And it, it just, they disconcerted me because I was worried about my drinking. So the people that um, avoid me the most or sober shame the most are the people who are actually ironically worried about their own drinking. Yes. So that's a good thing to remember. It 
Is there a present that you're most grateful for? Well, I'm looking at it right now. You know when they say, what would you save if there was a fire? Mm -hmm. And other than obviously live things like puppies, I would save my robotic hoover. I literally love it. (laughs) I hoover every day now. And I feel so Well, you don't. (laughs) (laughs) I, I I go in the shower and I'm soaking my hair, watching my hoover do the hoovering. It just feels so good. I adore it. So, And that is also like proper self-care right there, isn't it? Creating space to actually allow you to do, you know, nice things instead of hoovering. It's my least favourite thing. Me too. I love it. It's hideous. Hideous. (laughs) Um, Okay, so the robotic hoover, that is so funny because yesterday... My sister turned 40 a couple of weeks ago and yesterday she sent me a video of her brand new <laughs> robotic Hoover going around the kitchen. She was like, uh-huh, I did it. With some of her birthday <laughs> money, she bought a robotic Hoover and I thought my initial instinct was, no, 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 this is not 1950s Ireland. Um, <laughs> and then the next bit of me thought, you know what? There's kids there. It's a busy house. Actually, that is a way, that is a gift to herself because she's the only one doing it. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, it saves you an hour a week. Yeah. I hate hoovering. I know. Uh, But I don't like having dirty floors. So there you go. Yeah, fair, fair. If it's Stepford Wife, whatever. Whatever. Lean in. Uh, Has (laughs) it got a name? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's called after my brother, so but it's, it's his nickname, which I won't say on air because he hates it, but it's basically called Christopher Gray, so I enjoy it. Was he a good, good sweeper back in the day? <laughs> no. <laughs> I did the hoovering. Oh, <laughs> I see. It was definitely a gendered uh, household when it came to chores, okay. and so therefore I find it truly ironic and yeah. enjoyable that he now does my hoovering. Yeah, you can punish him daily. <laughs> um, okay finally before I let you go the hashtag blessed moment uh, well I would say for me that is and I experienced it just this morning which is why it's popped into my head but I used to be so skint um, in my 20s and early 30s because I don't know whether you know but journalists don't make much money mm-hmm. uh, that I would literally have to walk around the supermarket counting things up in my head to make sure that I was able to pay for them mm-hmm. and also drinking didn't help that because it's very expensive mm-hmm. but even when I when I quit drinking I really had to watch the pennies like a hawk and uh, you know I did a supermarket shop online earlier and I was just like biscuits fancy tea, mm-hmm. fresh pasta, and I'm not flushed by any means, but I can now do a shop and um, not count every pound oh. to make sure I don't go over my overdraft limit. Do you know what? Good. I completely, completely relate to that. And the fact that your extravagance or your like sense of abundance is related to the food shop. Uh, and I mean, I still gravitate towards the basics range. I'm not yeah. like a sultan. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but it does, <laughs> it does feel really good to buy some hobnobs and not be like, no, we can't get those. No hobnobs. I'm not an ambassador for hobnobs oh you're too funny Um, well listen (laughs) off you go enjoy those hobnobs I hope you're dipping them in some decadent whole raw milk or something like that it costs six pound a bottle for the cream watching my robotic hoover exactly (laughs) you're living the dream Catherine and I love it oh I am Um, thank you so much uh, for chatting to me I hope I see you in, in the flesh oh that would be lovely 
Thank you so much, Catherine. Her latest book, The Unexpected Joy of the Ordinary, is out now. While I have you, who has listened to the rest of the series? Ruby Wax, Joel Domit, Joe Brand, so much more to jump into. So if you like the sound of any of them, get stuck in down below. And also, because they're not time sensitive, I would suggest delving right back into series one. There's still some absolute nuggets in there and as ever if this has sparked some ideas about what you were thankful for I would love to hear so do drop me a line using the hashtag thanks a million trio you'll find me at Angela Scanlon on Instagram and Twitter we release new episodes every week so do subscribe via your favourite podcast platform and reviews and spreading the word are so 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 greatly appreciated so knock yourself out I love when you take the time to send me a message to say you've been listening and loving the podcast on an old review now if you listen on Spotify don't lose your mind because you actually can't leave a review on there so don't waste your time your sweet precious time side note if you haven't already please do subscribe to my newsletter you can just go to Instagram and there's a little link up there and you can get a newsletter full of lots of fantastic stuff into your inbox every Sunday morning like a hug and a slap in the face all at once okay that is it thank you so much we'll see you next week